chapter 16, we will look at an example of God's deliverance, His mighty power being expressed in the life of the Philippian jailer. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light, ran in, fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and we reverence it, and as we submit our hearts to it, we pray that uh, you would fill this people with great joy. Uh, we pray that you would uh, anoint my lips and take the feebleness of of these lips to communicate clearly uh, what you've intended for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Dan Cormie says that there are three kinds of Christian. There is the rowboat Christian that really wants to live their Christian life out, but they're doing so in their own strength, and when they grow weary, they rest for a while, only to find that the current is carrying them back to where they started. And then there are the sailboat Christians, and these are the same people, just different times of their life uh, uh, often, but these experience the, the wind of God's power, His supernatural power in their lives from time to time. They rejoice in this power. Uh, but what happens when the doldrums come, when the wind is taken out of their sails? And then he says there are the steamboat Christians who take the water of the Word together with the fire of the Holy Spirit and they have you know, power all the time. They're always moving forward no matter what the circumstances might be. Now, there are real limitations to that uh, illustration, but I, I think it does express well the idea that we need to begin, we need to continue, and we need to finish in the power of God. And a good chunk of this sermon is going to be looking at what Romans 1.16 speaks of as the power of God to salvation. Uh, that's a marvelous phrase. It takes almighty power to take sinful hearts and move them to uh, believe in God. And every Christian has tasted of this supernatural power. For example, Ephesians 1 says that we believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. We believe according to the working of His mighty power. So every Christian has tasted of the uh, supernatural power of God, and so they are at least sometimes steamboat Christians. But God's power to salvation doesn't just stop with regeneration and faith and uh, justification. Five times Paul applies that phrase to how Christians ought to be living by faith throughout their lives. 
as Paul told the believers in Corinth, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's 1 Corinthians 2.5. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he told the Corinthians that some people think that the cross is foolishness, but to us who believe, it is the power of God. It transforms our lives. It does empower us uh, throughout our lives. And I think that Acts 16, verse 25 definitely illustrates that Paul and Silas were experiencing this power of God to salvation as a daily reality, uh, not just at the beginning of their lives. Then, third stage, Paul indicates that in glorification and throughout eternity, quote, we shall live with Him by the power of God. And so we need to begin, we need to continue, and throughout all of eternity, we're going to need to be having this power of God uh, to salvation. And this passage we're looking at uh, shows the power of God in a number of different ways, and I hope it's a real encouragement to you, brings joy to your hearts, and uh, uh, helps you in your growth uh, with the Lord. Take a look at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Uh, this is a remarkable verse, and I'm going to park on this for a while. I want you to notice three things about it. And the first thing I want you to notice is the word but, because this is making a huge contrast between their upbeat spirits and the horrible circumstances that they had found themselves in. To someone who is looking on, this may have seemed like a paradox because they've just received a severe caning in verses 22 through 23. Verse 22 says that the magistrates commanded them to be beaten with rods, and the plural rods there indicates that there was more than one person who was whacking away at them uh, with uh, their sticks. And it must have gone on for a while because verse 23 says, they laid many stripes on them. Stripes are welts or split open skin or bruises or wounds that uh, have happened because of the, the rods have done damage to the tissues. Their torsos, their legs are probably just covered with these stripes. They are miserable. And then they're thrown into the jail. And we should not think of those jails like our modern jails that have flush toilets and running water, still not pleasant places to be. But when you were in the stocks, you couldn't go to the bathroom just at your pleasure. Many times you wet yourself. And if you were there for a very long period of time, uh, doubtless uh, you occasionally would soil yourself because you could not go at your convenience. And so when they were thrown into this dungeon, it was no doubt a stinking uh, cell because of the urine-drenched soil. There was not even concrete there uh, from previous prisoners. And then the stocks themselves are very uncomfortable because when you're chained into those things, your joints and your muscles, after a couple of hours, are just killing you. Now, they can't sleep, that's for sure. And so that word, but, shows a striking contrast. The second thing I want you to notice is what the power of God to salvation enables Paul and Silas to do. It says, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They weren't cursing the jailers. They weren't groaning and complaining and mumbling. They had plenty to complain about uh, from a human perspective, but they were praying to the God of all power and they were praising the God of all power. How do they have those kind of upbeat uh, spirits? Well, they had a secret. And their secret that they've shared with us in their other epistles is that when you complain, it just makes you more miserable 
And uh, on the other hand, when you begin to praise and give thanksgiving to God, not just in all circumstances, but for all circumstances, you begin to feel the power of God making you live above your circumstances. And I see praise as a power switch to enter into the supernatural. They didn't feel like praising God, but praise is a kind of faith. And when we exercise it, many times we experience the supernatural in the same way. And it does take faith uh, to pray and to praise in these circumstances like they did. But here's what happens if you don't exercise that. Bitterness will take over your heart. Bitterness against your circumstances, against people, and against God Himself. You're going to start feeling sorry for yourself. On the other hand, when you begin to exercise this kind of faith, God enables you to, to, to go from praising into actually feeling the joy of the Lord that Rodney talked about earlier. When you buy toys, many times there's a sign on them that says, batteries not included. That is definitely not true of the Christian life. Batteries are included. God uh, does expect us, though, to turn on the switch to power through faith. And where grumbling turns off faith, Prayer and praise is one of those things that deliberately puts the power switch to the position of on. The third thing I want you to notice is that verse 25 says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Every day we have people all around us who are looking at us, who are listening to us, who are watching what we are doing, and they want to see what kind of sermons your stripes are preaching. Uh, it's easy to preach a good sermon when everything's going grace, but what does your life preach when you are bleeding? Treated poorly, misunderstood, slandered, when you feel hurt. Those are the circumstances that Matthew chapter 5 tells us we can have joy in demonstrating that we have real sonship. How do you respond to your difficulties? Is it a testimony to the power of God to salvation? See, if your miserable circumstances produce negativity and complaining and grumbling, then you're not preaching the same sermon that their lives were preaching. You're preaching the sermon that the ancient Israelites in the time of Moses were judged for over and over again. God says their grumbling showed lack of faith, and the Scripture indicates the just must live by faith. <clears throat> Let me tell you a little secret. Fear is much like faith. In fact, I call it the evil twin of faith. Uh, Hebrews 11 defines faith as the substance, or some translate it as the title deed of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's exactly the way fear is. A fear is the title deed and the substance of things dreaded. And both fear and faith must be fulfilled. They demand uh, to be fulfilled. Scripture says that when you fear, well, excuse me, what you fear will come upon you. What you fear will come upon you. Those are scary words. Uh, and that's why we have to cast off fear. And many of us need to adjust our attitudes because when we expect the worst, the worst many times will come upon us. And so fear and complaining, it's the evil twin of faith. Praise and thanksgiving breaks the cycle and it ushers us into a life that's living by faith. Now, some of the finest hymns down through history have been written by people who are going through their darkest hours. Uh, Fanny Crosby was an example. She's written many different, um, actually thousands of hymns. And uh, she was blinded as a kid through 
a mistake that was made by a doctor. Uh, she had a cold, and he insisted that she had to wear this plaster, uh, mustard plaster, on her face, and it blinded her. Now, she did not become bitter uh, against God or against the doctor. Instead, she was thankful to God that this blindness had forced her to look to the Lord and find in the Lord an inner light that sustained her and buoyed her spirits. And she, some of her hymns, you could just see they were a testimony to the fact she was experiencing the power of God to salvation. There was another writer by the name of Horatio Spafford. He wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And many times when I read that, it brings tears to my eyes because this guy showed the reality. It's not just a theory. The reality of knowing what the power of God to salvation was all about. Let me give you a little bit of background. He lost, He was a real estate um, businessman, and he lost almost everything that he owned in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Uh, just uh, shortly before that, he lost his only son. His son uh, died. And uh, D.L. Moody, who was a friend of his, said, why don't you come over to Europe with us? And so they got onto a ship, and uh, business, last minute, kept him from going onto the ship, but he sent his four daughters and his wife on that ship. And when they were over uh, uh, midway in the ocean, um, another English vessel, vessel struck this ship and it sank in 12 minutes and all four of his daughters were drowned. His wife was picked up. She went to Wales and uh, there she cabled her husband and he quickly took the next ship over. And when he went and about that spot, he said he was so overwhelmed with the sorrow of all of the losses and the grief that he had been facing. But he deliberate, deliberately made the choice. He said, I don't want to get bitter. Instead, he said, I know I can cast my cares on the Lord knowing that the Lord cares for me. And he began to praise God. <clears throat> And God ministered to him powerfully, and he wrote this hymn at that time. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Now, not all people experience that. A lot of people have their vision so clouded by the grief that they have and the losses that they have that they can't see the goodness of God. And what it does is it makes them bitter, it makes them angry, makes them very frustrated, dissatisfied, and envious. And yet you see other people who go through exactly the same trials and tragedies and they have this joy of the Lord, which is their strength. In one Asian country that I minister in... Um, I witnessed the stripes on the bodies of saints uh, uh, who had been tortured for their faith, the, the burns that were on there, broken bones. And I told the Lord, Lord, I want, I want their supernatural joy. And Lord, I'm, I want to quit any complaining and grumbling. And I want to praise you not just in every circumstance, but praise you for the persecution. Praise you for the circumstances as these saints have done. Now, I'm not perfect in doing that. I still occasionally find myself going into negative faith, uh, complaining and uh, grumbling about things, and then I catch myself and I say, no, 
That is a sure way to miss out on God's blessings. And I begin taking those baby steps of saying, Lord, I don't feel like praising you, but I praise you anyway. And as I praise God and begin to give Him thanks for the things He has brought into, into my life, over and over I felt the supernatural power of God rising within myself and taking away the beginnings of bitterness. And God can do the same in your life as well. It's preaching the gospel to yourself every day of your life. And I urge you, switch on the power of God to salvation. It does deliver. There are batteries included, but it doesn't do any good if you've got the switch of faith uh, turned off in your life. And there's many ways in which you can express faith, but I think thanksgiving and praise is one of the most powerful ways of switching on that switch. Try it, even when you do not feel like it. And your praise will be transformed from a hollow note. It almost starts, always starts off as a hollow note. You're starting to praise. You don't feel like praising. But you know what? You find yourself transforming from that hollow note of praise into genuinely heartfelt gratitude to God. As Lamentations 3 says, in the midst of horrible calamity, and this is Jeremiah has gone through all kinds of losses. Everybody's against him. And he says, though the Lord, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says the, my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Roman numeral two. This gives us more reasons to have joy. Verse 26 testifies to the power of God in providence. It says, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. That's a mighty strange earthquake if you ask me because the foundations are shaken but the walls don't found, fall down. Uh, all of the doors are opened up. Every chain is loosed off their legs and their arms and yet the roof does not cave in on them. Uh, it's a very selective kind of an earthquake. And um, if... Uh, even in terms of timing, if that earthquake had come before Paul and Silas were in that uh, prison, likely he would have just chalked it up to coincidence because there had been earthquakes in that region before. But there was something different. There was something supernatural about this natural event. God controls the very earth to prepare a soul to receive salvation. Uh, this jailer. And the fact that every prisoner's chains fell off their their feet and their hands is a hint to me, I can't prove this, but it is a hint to me that God was also probably preparing all of the prisoners in that jail to form the core group of this new congregation in Philippi. Um, I suspect it was the prelude to their salvation because they didn't try to escape. Uh, they wanted to hear more. They could have very easily run out those doors, overpowered one lonely guard, There's, but they did not do so. Now, does God still cause nature to conspire together for His purposes? And we say, absolutely, yes, He does. Deuteronomy 28 guarantees it. Ephesians 1 says that our sovereign God has predestined all things and He controls all things for a good and a godly purpose. Romans 8.28 says He works all things together for our good. Proverbs 16.33 says, Even the dice that is thrown into the lap, its every decision is from the Lord. Now, the lot, or the dice, however you want to translate it there, was a symbol of chance. But that verse is indicating that even though we may have chance events that we didn't purpose, 
For God, there is no such thing as a chance event. Every time you throw the dice in the Monopoly game, it's every outcome is from the Lord. Now, be careful there. That does not mean you can start using the dice to manipulate God. He's sovereign. You can't manipulate Him. But it's every outcome is from Him. And by the way, this is one of the reasons I think it's fruitless to even try to be involved in, in, in gambling. Uh, there is pros and cons that people give on that, but I think, well, God controls the dice. Is He going to even want me to win? <laughs> so that's one of the reasons why, uh, why I, I don't bother. But every molecule of dust that you breathe is ordained by God. 1 Corinthians 10.13 guarantees God controls your circumstances so thoroughly that there is no temptation, no trial that you may face that is beyond your ability to cope, but God will with it give a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, all of those scriptures are indicators of the power of God and providence, and God continues to use providence to His glory and to bring people to salvation. And I want to spend a little bit of time looking at the way God's power prepared this hardened soldier uh, to receive the gospel. And I think it will be an encouragement because some of you have got real tough uh, relatives and friends and you've talked to them over and over about the gospel. You wonder, it's, it's hopeless. This person's never going to come to faith. And yet there is no person that is beyond God's uh, ability. In fact, later on we're going to be singing a hymn that talks about the Apostle Saul and how he came to Christ and uh, gives us encouragement along those lines. I know people who mock Christianity and they think Christianity is just a crutch. Everything's okay in their lives. And I am sure that this guard probably was in that same boat. He had heard it all. He was hardened to it all. And he probably did not think he needed God at all in his life. And yet in a moment of time, God caused his world to come crashing down where he sensed a real need. He comes running out of his bedroom and to his horror, he sees all of the doors are open and he thinks people must have opened those doors and left. Uh, so quickly, he goes running to the, the main cell. The doors are open there. It's all dark. He can't see, but he can't hear anything either. And so he assumes that everybody's escaped. And so verse 27 says, And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, why would he commit suicide? If you know a little bit of the history, you know that he was in deep trouble. Um, guards were held personally responsible for the prisoners, and if the prisoners escaped, he could be liable to the punishments they deserved all the way up to death. In fact, when Peter escaped, the guards were all killed. And so uh, he knew the pain and the shame that he was going to face were more than what he felt he could bear, and he would rather take his life at his own hands than to ha uh, face death, you know, whatever kind of death that they would uh, meet out for him from his superiors. Now, the point that I want to make is that a man brought to suicide is a man who has lost all hope. He's lost all hope. Well, if he's lost hope, it means he had hope before, but his hope would have been a humanistic hope. And what God was in the business of doing here was beginning a powerful work of humbling within him, taking away all hope so that he would put his hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God knows how to do that in the lives of all believers. If a person's hope is in their money, he knows how to make their stocks crash. If their hope is in their family, he knows how to bust their family apart. 
If their hope is in a job promotion, he knows how to get them demoted. And God can do this in the lives of, uh, of your relatives. It only took an earthquake to shake this man up. But if you look at the testimonies of Christians around the world, you see God is so creative in destroying the humanistic hopes that people have had. He uses pain and sickness and mental illness and social shame and incarceration and addictions and so many other things. And God can do it with your loved ones. Now, that's so important that you not just rush in there to protect these people against God's horrible providences in their lives. And this is what many parents and what many other people want to do. They don't allow the good work that God is working in their lives. They try to come between the two. But what we need to be doing is, sure, showing compassion, showing understanding, and maybe even help where appropriate, but asking, is God doing something in your life? It seems like God's really been beating up in your life uh, re recently. What is He doing? Is He trying to get your attention? Verse 28, But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Now, would it have been legitimate for Paul to escape? Uh, I've actually heard people say, you know, this is an example how we have to be passive. We can't escape. Well, just look at the example of Peter. When the angel freed him, he didn't feel any compulsion to sit around and chat with the guards. Uh, he was out of there like a flash. And yet God prompted uh, uh, Paul to remain and not escape. He could have easily done so. And he prompted Paul uh, to stop this uh, jailer from killing himself. Suicide is not a great escape. When pagans commit suicide, it's an evidence that they just can't stand the pressure and the pain or the shame that they are facing, but they're trading one bad thing for something far worse when they commit suicide. And so it's a humanistic, it's a false hope. It's not a true hope that's going to sustain them. Your friends may have their own humanistic solutions. <clears throat> Here's some of the solutions that people come up with. They go to a psychologist, they go on drugs, they sit in front of the TV eating Doritos, <laughs> maybe a playboy lifestyle. But whatever the humanistic solutions, God knows how to remove that. We can be confident in that. Third, God knows how to produce reverence and fear for Him. Verse 29 says, When He called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He didn't just shut the doors and say, Phew, that was a close one. Those uh, prisoners almost all escaped. Now we got them back in the box. Uh, no, there was something weird going on here. He was confused. He was puzzled. And he knew that Paul and Silas had something that he did not have. He sees their confidence and he knows he needs what they have. God instills at that moment a proper reverence for himself. And then the final work of humbling comes as God opens spiritual eyes to see how much of a sinner he really is. Now, the jailer didn't need salvation from Roman punishment. That's already been forestalled. Uh, there's something else going on here. Verse 30 says, And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's talking about salvation from sin and from hell. He's talking about salvation from self and from Satan. And uh, it takes a humbling work for people to even recognize that they need salvation. You've probably experienced this. When you talk with people about salvation, they just think it's a ridiculous idea. Uh, what do I need to be saved for? Uh, it's foolishness to them. But God's power can bring them to that place. 
And God may have used the songs and the prayers and you know the attitudes of the prisoners. We're not told what He used, but God had Him exactly where He needed to be to bring Him to faith. And that's where we're going to end as point four. This is a testimony to the power of God's saving work. Now, his question still has some self-effort uh, involved in it. The jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response is one of the most insulting things that you can say to a person who was self-sufficient. He tells them, believe. Believe in something someone else has done. Believe in the finished work of Jesus. Believe you can't do anything but believe. Now, take a look at verse um, 31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. There's no salvation when we believe in ourselves. No salvation when we believe in our parents or believe in someone else. We need to believe, put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who alone alone is our Savior. Now, that's an amazing, remarkable thing that a simple trust in Christ can wipe out an entire lifetime of sins and not only save us, but save our entire family. And that, yeah, that's exactly the audacious promise that Paul and Silas uh, give. Believe. Personal salvation speaks of grace, not self-effort. Family salvation at whatever time God's going to bring it into their life speaks of grace and not self-effort. His children don't deserve salvation any more than the jailer did. And yet, as faith turns on the power switch, the lights come on in his soul and the lights come on in his family as well. Amazing grace. It's amazing grace. But God's power continues to make changes. Where this man had zero interest in the Word of God prior to this moment, suddenly, in a moment of time, he has an intense interest in the Bible. Now, he's been sleeping prior to this. He slept through their, their, their singing and their testimonies and all of that stuff. Now, he is wide awake. Verse 32, Then they spoke the Word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. First Peter says that God's power produces within every brand new baby Christian a hunger for the Word. But he says, you need to, by faith, turn on the switch of that hunger because that hunger can wane over time. First Peter 2, verse 2, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Uh, verse 33 shows that God's power to salvation also produced a new love for the brethren. It says, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. Now, this was a man who was used to pain and suffering all around him. I doubt very much it bothered him anymore to see prisoners in excruciating pain. He's been used to this. In fact, he's probably one of the ones that would inflict this pain on people. And yet, now he's got concern, he's got compassion, he's got love. Where did this come from? It's the power of God that produced that in his life, in his heart. That's where the tenderness came from. 1 John 3 says, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And so this is a new uh, love that God has instantaneously instilled within the jailer by His power. That means every Christian uh, has experienced that. But you know, God wants us to experience that supernatural power of love for the brethren throughout the rest of our lives. 
Now, the jailer was also ushered into a new life through baptism, it says, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. And so baptism initiates him into the church, into a new life, into the kingdom, uh, new powers, new privileges. He's no longer a foreigner. He's no longer an alien to the covenants of promise. Uh, God has ushered him in. He's put his seal of his baptism upon him, which sets him apart from the world. It calls him to a new life. Verse 34 speaks of a new fellowship. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. Now, fellowship is not fundamentally hanging out together. That's the way we a lot of times use the word, yeah, we're fellowshipping together. Well, there isn't any sharing going on. It's just hanging out. But the Greek meaning of the word fellowship is uh, a word that conveys the idea that you're sharing something of yours with someone else. It could be sharing food, money, uh, resources, labor. It could be sharing all kinds of things. But it is, it is a sharing of your life with the lives of others. And God has placed within this man not only a desire to serve his new friends, which is what he's doing when he's washing their wounds, but also to share of what he has with them, to give things to them. That is a powerful work of God's grace to take a person from being self-absorbed in his interests and self-seeking interests to now having a desire to serve others and to have be in fellowship with other people. It's a remarkable evidence of God's grace and every believer is ushered into that the moment they are born again. We're ushered into the fellowship of the brethren. Again, the book of 1 John, "...but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him?" And so every, every new believer starts out with this fellowship, but what happens is over time it's very easy for that fellowship to grow dull and to wane and to miss out on the power of God's grace. Turning the switch to on might simply be stepping out in an act of fellowship that you really didn't want to do, but you say, you know, God, I want to please you. And so you step out in the act of fellowship and it's in the act of serving that God amazingly instills an interest in this, a renewed interest and a renewed joy in this fellowship that used to be there. But it's imperative. We continue to live in the power of the cross throughout our lives. Next, we see this man filled with joy. It says, and he rejoiced having believed in God. Now, what's to rejoice in? I mean, the circumstances still look pretty bad. Uh, God did not protect Paul and Silas from a severe beating. So what's this jailer thinking is so great about God? Uh, he's not instantly healed because this jailer is having to, to nurse the wounds that are on their backs. They're still in jail. There is nothing outwardly to call forth such joy. So what does the jailer see? A person might say, well... He's joyful because it's, these guys spared his life. But you know, at the time, he preferred death to what he feared. I think this goes way beyond the circumstances. It says he rejoiced having believed in God. There was a relationship between his faith and his joy, and God instilled that joy within him. When God gave him joy, there was an instant turning on of... Uh, of joy within his life. Now, here's what Hebrews says. It says, you guys once had incredible joy. Even when you were being persecuted, you had great joy. What's going on in your life? You've turned off the switch. You don't have that. And so he calls them 
to persevere in that joy throughout their lives and to do so by faith. Here's how he words it. Hebrews 3, verse 6. Tells them to hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And so the same faith that starts joy in your life is a faith that can enable us to continue to fight for joy, as John Piper in one of his books words it. Now the last thing that we see is that God's power produced an infectious joy in the lives of others. Now the New King James is a bit misleading here because it implies that the whole household believed. Uh, The Greek does not uh, say so. Uh, It indicates that his belief was producing joy not only in his life, it was producing joy in the lives of others. Here's how the ESV translates it. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The whole household is rejoicing that he had believed. They see something different, but there's no uh, mention of their faith in this uh, passage. So why does the New King James uh, translate it this way? Well, we can't get into their mind, but here is the translator notes of the NET, which did the same thing as the New King James here. And the NET explains their, their rationale. It says, a formal equivalence translation... And let me just explain here. We love formal equivalence translation. It's very literal, word for word. You're trying to capture every detail of the Greek and bring it into the English. And um, uh, it says, a formal equivalence translation would have, and he rejoiced greatly with his entire household that he had come to believe in God. But the reference to the entire household being baptized in verse 33 presumes that all in the household believes. And so their Baptistic theology has um, made them insert something here. But the point is not to talk about baptism, even though there's a lot that could be talked about. I'm just going to leave that, drop it. What I want to be pointing out here is that the jailer's faith produces something not only in himself, it produces something in his whole family. When the head of a household believes, there are profound ramifications upon the entire household. Uh, Just as one example, when the power of Satan over the head of a household is broken, the stranglehold on the whole family is broken as well. Um, The atmosphere is lightened. And as this man weeps for joy and laughs for joy and praises God for joy, there's an infectious joy that creeps out into the whole family. Now, it may be perfectly accurate Uh, What the Baptists are saying is that they also probably believed, and I believe that's a very natural outcome, that our children are going to come to faith. But that's not what the Greek uh, here says. I'm just wanting to emphasize his faith produced an infectious joy. Now, every one of us ought to long for the same power of God in our lives. It produces joy not just in us, but infectiously in our family, in the lives of others. And that kind of a joy does not flow from your circumstances. It flows from the throne of God. It is part of Christ making all things new in a believer's life. It's part of the power of God to salvation. And this is one of the reasons why I've emphasized over and over down through the years that if we're to know the power of God, we've got to know God. We've got to be in fellowship with God. Intimacy with Christ is the first of five C's that we train leaders in and we try to train everybody in. 
because you can't really, without Christ, that's the first C, you can't fully know and enjoy community. And without Christ and community, you're going to be stunted in your character. And without Christ and community and character, you're going to have a very shallow calling. And without Christ, community, character, and calling, you're going to many times be deflected from and derailed within the competencies that you are trying to learn. But all of it has to flow from Christ. Daniel 11, verse 32 says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Brothers and sisters, every one of us who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has at one time or another been rowboat Christians. We've tried to live the Christian life, but we've been doing it in our own strength. And it gets old. You know, to be rowing and rowing and rowing and then after a while finding yourself right back where you were before. And every one of us has experienced from time to time sailboat Christianity where we've experienced the reality of the power of God in our lives. But it gets old uh, when you fluctuate from those times of spiritual power into despondency and despair. And what this passage is calling every unbeliever who is here to is to be a steamboat Christian. And every old believer who is here is to be a steamboat Christian who experiences the power and the reality of God's presence unto salvation throughout their lives. Now, how do we do that? We turn on the switches of faith that we've talked about in this sermon. Hebrews 11 lists some of those switches. It lists other switches as well. For example, it says about Abraham that by faith, Abraham obeyed God's call and he went out not knowing where he was going to go. That could be a scary thing. Step out not knowing what God's next instructions are going to be, but Abraham rejected fear, went out by faith, and therefore did not inherit what fear dreads. Instead, he inherited the promises of God. By faith, Sarah conceived. Now, did she blow it on, at times as well? Yeah, she did. She laughed at God. She had unbelief. But she entered into the supernatural by faith, by an action of faith. Every example of faith in Hebrews 11 is an action that takes God at His Word. And I believe that the prayers and the praises in this chapter of Acts 16 are, were similar actions of faith. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that complaining was tugging at the heart of Paul and Silas. After all, they're human just like you and I are. I'm absolutely convinced there was this temptation to, to, to complain. But they kicked that filthy demon into the corner, refused to complain, and instead what they did is they embraced God's purposes of forgiveness, of praise, and of thanksgiving. And as a result, they experienced the power of God coming through. And so my question is, will you be a people of faith? Every day that you step out in the actions of faith that God calls you to do, God will usher you into the, the power of God unto salvation. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, thank You for this Your Word. What a challenge it is to our lives. What a way it exposes uh, the shallowness sometimes that our lives uh, show. And we pray that You would take us out of rowboat Christianity and even 
out of sailboat Christianity, which uh, is much better, but into a steam-powered uh, Christianity that uh, never is swayed by the circumstances that are around us, but keeps pressing forward, keeps pressing up toward the upward call that You have given to us in Christ Jesus. Bless this, Your people, with that supernatural joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory, uh, a joy and a peace that we, goes beyond understanding because it cannot be humanly explained. And I pray, Father, that as they experience this, that they would have a greater and a deeper hunger to experience it more and more. May we be a people who lives in the realm of the supernatural. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.